JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And uh, PJ, I uh, I think, I know, I know we record these a little in advance, but... Happy one-year anniversary for the JLA cast. Oh my god, is it? Yeah. Wow. I think so. Wow. Uh, I think I think this episode comes out at the end of April, which means it's been a solid year, and we've got an episode out every two weeks without fail, and we kind of splurged with like a five-episode... Like when we released, we had like five episodes like ready to go. So yeah, I think this is both episode thirty and our and our anniversary at the same time. That's look at us putting out regular content for a full year. I mean, essentially, it's just us waffling into microphones for an hour or two. But you know, and I think if you if you took all the content that doesn't make it to the air, like the um, the half hour to an hour we spend talking before turning the mic on each episode. We probably have, we probably have like a second year's worth of content. I'd, I'd imagine just there. It would just be John and PJ rant about whatever's on their minds this time. Mm. Yes, I mean that's just, that's like that's too hot. That's too hot for network television. Basically, that's when that's when, that's when we get litigious. That's your that's your your pay per view event. If you want to hear what John and PJ think of Neon Genesis Evangelion, um. Yes, or the the hot news of the day, um, <laughs> which is when we realise that like most comic related news nowadays is kind of depressing in some way. So oh, we can- oh, speaking of comic related news, and already we- okay. <laughs> I'm doing this. So this is is we're recording this on Easter Monday. It has been Easter weekend, uh, and a lovely Easter weekend was had by many. But online, it's one of those weekends where a topic that comes up a lot was brought up again by someone thinking they're being clever. And I just want to put this to rest now. So there was someone who tweeted, why doesn't Batman, instead of spending all his money dressing up as a bat and punching people, spend his billions on fixing Gotham's social problems and, and donating to charity and stuff like that? God, I hate that. And of course, um, you know, when I when I foolhardedly, uh, foolhardedly um, uh, kind of said that uh, on the air, <laughs> it's, it's one and only time I've been glad we've recorded in separate rooms, PJ, because um, I, I know about you and your and your many knives, and I, I was I was suddenly scared. So look, here's the th- there's two reasons why the story of Batman isn't Bruce Wayne spends billions fixing Gotham's social problems. One, 
that is not a fun story to read in a comic. What are you going to want to read? The story about Batman punching a supervillain or, oh, look, Bruce just invested in a charity. Two, Batman already does that, okay? Bruce Wayne has canonically set up numerous charitable foundations and donates huge sums of money to fix the social issues going on in Gotham. The problem is, Gotham also has supervillains. Okay? So, you need to punch them. That Just at, stop at, it with at, these hot takes. At what point is Gotham a lost cause? I mean, I mean, like, seriously, has any, any city in fiction or the real world ever experienced, like, such a high death rate among the general civilian population or... <laughs> Like, can you imagine what it's like to live in Gotham? Gotham. You'd you know, move. I wouldn't live there. Yeah. I'd move. I'd rather live in Vanity City. Eh? Hey? Hey? A... That's, that's a reference. It's a reference to... Aztec? Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> that's oh, where right, Aztec lives. <laughs> I was trying to think of a funny, funny thing I could put in there, and then my mind went blank and I had nothing. So, yeah, that's where Aztec lives. No, I'm sorry, PJ. I should never have doubted your uh, your knowledge. No, in this case, um, in this case, you can doubt it. But I mean, like, even if you didn't, I wouldn't work at a bank. That would be bad. <laughs> I wouldn't work at a nightclub or any kind of entertainment establishment because that's rife. You know, that's ripe for a battle or a confrontation. Maybe if I worked for, like, some kind of... No, you can't work for the city. You don't want to work for any kind of municipal... Um, maybe if you owned, like, a grocer in Gotham. I think if you live in the DCU, you want to get out of the cities and just go live in a small town somewhere. Small town America, yeah. minding your own business, keeping to yourself. That's That's the thing to do. Try to live in a place that doesn't have a superhero. Yeah. Because they are like magnets. They are going to attract trouble. <laughs> um, I would say try and live in a real city as well, like um, Keystone, Star, Metropolis, Gotham. You know, I, they're magnets for trouble. But then again, if, you, if you're in the DC universe, you probably wouldn't know any better. They'd all be real cities. Well, especially since sort of as the nineties hit and they started having the hit like Kyle lived in New York and that's a real city. Mm. Yes, damn it. That's out as well. Yeah, so go live very remotely, but not too remotely, because if you live like in the desert or say in the wilds of Alaska, there's a very good chance that your house is on top of some kind of ancient civilization. Yeah. Or doomsday weapon. Yeah. Probably. Or or giant slumbering being. So that's not good. Um, you don't want to live near the coast, because then you've got sea monsters. Hmm. I think you just want to move to Canada. Canada might be nice. <laughs> 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 um, God, yeah, it'd be so perilous, wouldn't it? On, on, on just a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, just go and live in Canada... Build a snowman and go, well, they've got all those problems in America with them supervillains. Here's a question, PJ. In the DC universe, there are a lot of uh, fictional cities in America. Yeah. Uh, there are more... Basically, the, the DC universe version of America is more urbanised. There are more cities. Yeah. 
Um, there are also fictional countries out there. Yeah. You, you know, if they ever want to have a... Uh, I know they always... Uh, is it uh, Kurak? That's, that's one of like them. A, yep. That's one of them. Yeah, if they ever want to do a story about the Middle East but don't want to offend anyone, they have a fake, <laughs> they have a fake Middle Eastern country called Kurak. Um, my question to you, PJ, is much like you have Metropolis, Blue Valley, um, Keystone City, that sort of thing, does the same apply to Britain? Oh, are there a good fake question. are there fake British towns and cities? I don't remember, if I'm honest. I can't think of many DC books that go to Britain that specifically name check a city that isn't London, so or Edinburgh in a couple of cases. I, I genuinely don't know. I don't want to make it a thing where I always mention the knight, the Batman of Britain, uh in, in our show, but I know that the secret identity of the knight is... I can't remember his name, but his title, because he's a lord, uh, he's the Earl of Wardfordshire, I think. Oh, okay. So there's a fake there's a fake county right off the bat. Well, then maybe that would have to be filled with fake cities and things, wouldn't it? Or, well, a fake city. Most county, counties in the UK don't have more than one city, do they? I guess the problem with... British place names is that we so rarely have a place called like Keystone City or Star City. Our place names are weird anyway, so yeah, a lot of them either derived from old Latin or Anglo-Saxon words for what was there when they found them, rather than America that just went, well, this is in this place, so let's call it this place city, or name it after a British town. I'll be honest with you, I've always liked, I've always liked the vague uh, kind of notion that. Whether you're in the Marvel universe or the DC universe or, or, or you know, any superhero universe, um, for whatever reason, superheroes never really took off in the UK in the same way. Yeah. I like that. I like that theory. It's like, I'm not saying they don't exist, but, like, for whatever reason, the British populace didn't really skew as much towards heroes uh, of that way of that nature in some way i also feel like when writers have tried to create fake british towns in comics they've always just gone with something ridiculous like this isn't a real one but this is the kind of thing my head brings up like beans on toast town things like that <laughs> <laughs> they've gone with lazy british stereotyping <laughs> it'll be like um oh god they'll, they'll have names like uh Form- or um <laughs> uh, frumpster or um Clang, you know, they'll just have like. Really, I gotta say, I always, I always cringe a little bit when um, I think Marvel are quite bad at this when they they try to bring out more uh, heroes for the UK, like mm. Captain Britain. That's fine. Yep. Uh, Union Jack, I think that's that's cool as well. But like, isn't there in the main continuity a Welsh superhero called Red Dragon? There is. Yeah, but and I remember I, she was oh, introduced yeah. by a British writer as well. That's, oh, okay, okay. I, I well, think it was um, in the pages of Civil War Frontline uh, when they brought the, these other British characters in. I think one of those, and anyway, it was definitely a Civil War tie-in. And uh, but it was written by Paul Jenkins. I'm pretty sure. Ah, well, Paul, that's I apologise. That's forgiven. My my problem is more that like I think I remember her from a panel of Civil War as well, and it's like. She 
is like the spiritual defender of Wales. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, that's great and all. And, you know, it's nice that you got a name, you know, Red Dragon. That's cool. Um, have you been to Wales? Because, I mean, <laughs> PJ, I know you live in Wales. Um, <laughs> a lot of my family are from North Wales. Um, whole lot of mountains. Whole lot of yeah. mountains in Wales. Yeah. Um, not a lot of centres of population. Um, I don't know. I just feel like if you're if you're um, if you're having a great big superhero kind of battle in uh, Macuthlith or uh, Dolgechai, um, it's maybe got not, not going to have the same weight as um, swinging from a New York skyscraper. Wales is a bit like Australia, in that all our big population centres, the big cities and towns, are along the coast. And then if you go further into the middle, you just get little towns and countryside areas. Not desert, like Australia has, and we don't have you know <laughs> spiders that will kill you as soon as look at you. But in terms of how the, how it's laid out with where the population lives, it's, it's largely coastal with then mm. farms and smaller towns in, inland with Wales. Yeah, yeah. It's, God, I, yeah, but the memories of kind of like uh, driving across Wales diagonally to visit my uh, <laughs> to visit my grandparents it's like there's no major road that takes you that route it's all just hugging mountains and kind of you know t- tight little oh yeah god some terrifying kind of corners you've got you've got uh, the M4 will take you as far as Swansea mm-hmm. from London so that's our big motorway and then i think it's the A470 is the one that sort of runs north from Cardiff into the valleys but i think eventually that just sort of becomes a small track at some point <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do. I find it. In, yeah, there's like the meta. There's like the meta theory around comics, which um, I think there was an episode of uh, an issue of Planetary that kind of touched on it, which was like um, the 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 British invasion of um, comics in the eighties. So all the British creators who came over and the kind of weird stuff that they came up with. I like the idea that like culturally. <laughs> America's finest superpowered export was the superhero, the concept of the superhero. And I like the idea that the the finest kind of British export of weirdness was basically just like John Constantine or uh, Sandman or like the the weird anti-hero. So not not like no, that's wrong. Not an anti-hero, but like a a hero who isn't a hero sort of thing. A hero who's weird or confused or makes you question things a little bit. Or a normal hero, uh, normal in terms of, you know, the the sort of archetypal good guy character, but who faces really weird threats, like Mm. when Alan Moore took over Captain Britain. Mm. Yeah, and it's like, it's less about stopping bank robbers and more just like his weird other dimensions and magical beings and alien bounty hunters and stuff. Yeah. I like we I like weirdness. I do. Well, was it uh Death's Head came out of the Marvel UK scene as well and he's one of my absolute favorite all-time favorite characters Death's Head. He's brilliant, but that's can, such can a say, weird creation. Kind of say that I've never really I've never read a Death's Head comic. But you see him around a lot. You see his his face and I've never gotten it. He's a bounty hunter, isn't he? Yeah, I recommend picking up if you if they can 
still find them. A few years ago, when Panini started publishing their own sort of trade collections of Marvel stories, and so they were just basically reprinting the American trades, but in their own covers with cheaper cardboard. But they also started doing some Marvel UK collections, and they did two books that collected the complete run of Death's Head up to that point. And right, right. So it, except for his Transformers appearances, because they didn't have the license to do those, but all his solo stuff, which did include his crossovers with Doctor Who. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. But those are really, really good, fun comics, and those are the reason I love the character of Death's Head. Have you ever read um, any Zenith? No. Um, Morrison's um, superhero title for 2000 AD? No, I haven't. I've got um, volume one of, I want to say like Absolute Zenith, when they kind of like rebound and printed them again. Uh, and a friend gave me the entire original run in 2000 ADs. So I've got like um, a, a stack of, I can see them from here actually, a stack of vintage 2000 ADs. Um, it's weird. Like it, it's it's very weird. It's, and again, it's that thing where it's a British superhero hmm. uh, in a media uh, at a time and a, and, a, and a medium that wasn't doing superheroes. And um, even even then, it's like well, he's definitely a superhero, but it's got that weird ironic British twist to it, where like we can't just do a straight superhero story. Like it's got to be weird in some way. Why is that? I think bizarre. I think because you know, I think it's there's, there's a difference between the histories of the two countries. Obviously, America's a much younger nation and was very much built on the the oh, we're we're at this new frontier and the the whole Wild West vibe with good guys and bad guys, very black and white. Whereas Britain has always had this sort of countercultural thing going on behind the scenes. You look at how many rebellions and uprisings we had against the whoever was ruling at the time and is there's always been this idea in britain that a hero isn't necessarily what they seem to be and that they're not so straight edged are we inherently cynical do you think i don't know if it's cynicism i mean yes probably but so much as we have to for someone to save britain they have to twist things and change things and do things outside the box. Um, that sort of straight-edged heroism that is typical of American superheroes, or was back in the day. Obviously, things have changed a lot nowadays, really. But I think, I think, yeah, those stories have always been... Like, if you look at British folklore and things, that's filled with really weird, bizarre tales. And America doesn't really have its own folklore in the same way because it's such a young nation. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's some yeah weird, creepy old kind of folklore stuff in, in Britain. I don't know, it's like, it feels like a haunted country. Like, it, it, yeah. it, it feels like it's always been haunted. Like, um, I've, um, I've, I remember having some family holidays up in uh, uh, Northumberland, you know, and uh, I remember just like a couple of nights, like walking, walking the dog down like this country lane and the wind's roaring and the trees are kind of whipping around. And you just get a sense of like this kind of, I don't know, really like ancient, unsettling kind of presence in the country. And you're like, yeah, it kind of feels like we shouldn't be here in a way. <laughs> like we're kind of trespassing on something old. 
I, I do find that stuff fascinating, and I've got books on it. So I've got, but like for different areas of Britain. So I've got a book about ghost stories and paranormal activity in Surrey, where I'm originally from. I've got a book about the haunted castles and and in Wales and and various different books about different areas. One about Devon and all the different sort of ghosts and things in Devon. And I think they're fascinating. And I think there's a thing if you go to America, you get the East Coast, the Northern East Coast, really, and of New England. So you sort of Massachusetts and Maine and that that area is also steeped in this stuff because that's where we first landed. But as you then move south and west across the country, it sort of goes away. Because you get like, that's very much like, um, you know, Lovecraft kind yeah. of territory, uh, Stephen King kind of territory, isn't it? It's yeah. like, it's got enough of, enough history and enough of like the old kind of immigrant folk tales and, and um, you, can, you can feel it it's almost tangible when you're there like i've been to boston and i've been to rhode island and and on the east coast all these places and you can feel that history and that sense of something slightly other about it as well but then if you go to other places in america it just doesn't have it in the same way like if you go to chicago i've been to and, and california where it's totally different vibe but you don't get that almost I eerie undertone i will say one one area of america which i've never been to which I, I would love to go to but which also terrifies me a little bit is um the northwest so uh we're, we're talking like kind of twin peaks county yeah that sort of area like um there's something about those deep forests there which does i get that same kind of vibe where i'm kind of like this is a very ancient place in a way. <laughs> and like, yeah, I don't know. It's like I a lot of the things that scare me, a lot of the kind of horror and fiction I enjoy kind of reading, it's like it's those ancient forests and it just scares the hell out of me. Like, I'd love to see it. I've been to New Hampshire, which is sort of the New England version of that. So it's very mountainous and these big, deep forests. And we went and stayed. Um, we were staying with family in Rhode Island and they had friends who had this huge cabin in the middle of a clearing in the forest in New Hampshire that we went and stayed in for a few days. <laughs> and that was, I was like nine at the time and it creeped me out. I loved it. It was also just a, a beautiful place to be. And even at that young age, we just went and swam in a river nearby and that was amazing and in the forest, but it was also deeply unsettling to me somehow just being in the middle of this forest with nothing else around. <laughs> Superman can't help you there, PJ. No, no, he's weak to forests. Actually, what am I saying? Superman could. Yeah, he helped you anyway. Of course he could. Has Superman ever battled the Jersey Devil? I feel that's something even Superman could do. Do you know what? I bet he has. I bet, I bet there's a, a comic from the 50s or 60s where Julie Schwartz or Kurt Swan or someone had him fight, the, or Gardner Fox had him fight the Jersey Devil or something like that. That's basically... that's. I mean, I think that's something Morrison has lent into like time and time again with Superman. Because again, he, Superman is the ultimate child's he idea of a hero. And it's like, it's like nobody can beat the devil. But Superman can. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, whatever you think can't be done, Superman can do it. That's yeah, the idea. Basically. <laughs> hey, I guess um, we, we should take a moment to um, say hello to all our new listeners. Who, who who have discovered the show in recent weeks? We've had a bit of a a kind of up uh, an upswing, a spike 
in in listeners, which is yeah, lovely. It's brilliant. Hello, and, and welcome to all of you. you. Are all most welcome. We love having you uh, listen to our ramblings about a comic that we love that you clearly share an affection for as well, and that's just a, a lovely thing. It's, it's really good to know that people listen to what we say about the comic and don't go, "What the hell are these idiots talking about?" I know it is. I mean, we have to. We can't. We can't rule out PJ that there are people who just enjoy the sounds of our voices. You know, we, could, we do have could, lovely could, voices. Yeah, I mean, and um, you know, as evidenced by the fact we've we've spent twenty minutes talking about weird folklore <laughs> and scary for, forests rather than the JLA. Yeah. Um, but no, it's lovely because we've had um, we've had some very nice uh, kind of comments and kind of discussions lately, and a couple of people have uh, left a review, which is really encouraging because. You know, we we'd be even if no one was listening, we'd be doing this. I mean that, you know, that was the first kind of twenty nine episodes. But like, yeah. um, <laughs> it's always, it's yeah, it's very gratifying to hear that people are enjoying it, which is good. And a couple of five star ratings, which is we all know I'm a big fan <laughs> of. So, um, we've also had um, a, you know, a couple of comments where people are saying um, they very much hope we keep going once we finish the Morrison run. Uh, we have plans. We do have ideas. Plans, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, we, we're enjoying talking comics with each other too much to just stop once we hit the end of Morrison's run on JLA, I think. Yeah, it's, I, if anything, it's like we're, we're spoilt for choice, really. Um, I think one very good suggestion was to explore some of um, uh, the kind of um, big events of the time, the things that kind of gave context to to kind of um, the Morrison run, which is which is actually something we, we discussed in private as a... Because, you know, PJ, you're generally kind of better read than I, I mm. feel, about some of these um, 90s uh, events that DC were putting out. Well, one thing we have talked about doing, and uh, someone else has also suggested now, and, and I think it is a good idea, is that we look at the complete run of the death of Superman an issue at a time, because you've not read it. No, no, I culturally, I've, I've absorbed a lot of it, but no, never actually read it firsthand. And I think that would be quite an interesting one to go back and, and have a look at in the context of what we know was to come after and what we know led to that story. And and just to see how you approach it as having not read it before as well. Whereas I, I first read it in the late 90s. They had it in my local library and I, I got all three volumes of it and devoured them and absolutely loved it. It's weird because... Um... You know, like I'm, I'm the guy who thinks that there's actually some deeper meaning behind, like the onslaught saga, mm. in like a kind of meta, in like a kind of meta commentary. And um, you know, we've had people point out that you know their take on the death of Superman and some of the meta narrative that was going on there. And yeah, it would be lovely to uh, to kind of like experience that and to be able to compare notes from the gulf of time. Really, this is our promise. We're going to do the death of Superman. We don't know when. But it's going to happen. We don't know when. It's going to happen at some point. And yeah, PJ, you've got a few things from the vault which you're going to dig out, which are going to be quite kind of quite kind of interesting. Yes. Um, I should say. I should say, however, we've had um, we've had um, one of our first pieces of uh, kind of fan fan mail or listener mail. It's very presumptuous of me to call them a fan. Maybe they're just a, a discerning listener. <laughs> um, but PJ, this goes to a contentious issue from um, an earlier an earlier episode. Uh oh. But. Uh, cr- Chris uh, Chris Murphy writes in. Hi, Chris. Um, thank you for the kind words. Because, Hi, Chris. Uh, he's, appa- he's apparently enjoying the show, which is lovely. Um, but he wants to um, go back to our JLA Wildcats discussion. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
which um, was uh, not not necessarily a highlight of the Morrison run. I think it's fair to say. I would say um, a low light. <laughs> yeah, there's some bits some bits which were good. I mean, look, some it bits was, weren't so good. It was something I hadn't read before. It was the point. The whole. All of this, it was the part of the Morrison run that was completely new to me, and I can't say I feel like I'd ever missed out. No, and and would you say, PJ, that given that it was a JLA Wildcats crossover, uh, did uh, is there like a, a a half of the crossover that you appreciated less, perhaps? Uh, yeah, the... Wildcats, but the moment they showed up, that's <laughs> when the early stuff with the JLA and oh, I, I did quite like. There was some fun stuff in there, but once the Wildcats showed up, I checked out essentially. Well, I remember we um, we we uh, we almost came to blows on um, the Grifter's mask, Grifter's um, stupid mask. Yeah, I, I maintained, uh, you know, quite sensibly and you know rationally and in a, in, a, in a very kind of eloquent manner. That I felt that um, Grifter's mask was actually the perfect distillation of a superhero costume. Like it is the bare minimum you need to be a costume, while also just being a rag around his face, and is is therefore uh, a work of subtle genius. <laughs> and I maintained that it was stupid. <laughs> well, um, on that note, Chris is um, uh, Chris is wisely, uh, you know, for fear of. Um, uh, you know, scoking PJ's uh, anger uh, has has wisely uh, not picked a side. <laughs> that, I, up- yeah, that's very very wise, Chris. Reopen old wounds without actually telling us which side you're <laughs> on. I like it. Nice. Uh, but but he did he did want to draw our attention to um, a character called the Clock, who is generally considered to be the first masked superhero character um now this is uh kind of distinct from shall we say superman who who of course is a superhero not not big on the mask um but yeah the clock is kind of seen as one of like the early um that that trope you know just because we have superman and batman and they're both superheroes but they they both scratch very different itches hmm this is a, the clock is the missing link apparently between the pulp hero and the masked superhero, and he has uh, a big rag around his face like Grifter. Yeah, so I I had a look into the clock. Apparently, he dates from nineteen thirty six, so three years before Superman made his debut. And yeah, apparently, he is the first masked hero to appear in American comics. Though, of course, at that point, this would very much have been in the pulp style. Um, so those characters who largely wear suits, but then, yeah, and he is. He's, he's wearing a nice, the, the image I'm looking at right now, a nice blue suit with a white bow tie and a white hat. And then, yep, what can only be described as a black handkerchief hanging over his face. It's it's um, it's very much, um, you know, you get vibes of like uh, the spirit. Um, yeah. The shadow. Yep. Um uh, you know, de- definitely an era where you know having a hat and a suit was a was a was a license to just punch people in the face. Um, it's a look I like. It's a look I think is still quite strong nowadays. It's very, it's very iconic. Um, 
I know again in uh, in Planetary, which um, had some plots around the, the the bridging of pulp heroes into superheroes, you can. It's a shorthand. I think people instantly recognise that trope when mm. they see it now. Uh, I know also in a in Atomic Robo, which is uh, a kind of long long running now uh, in indie title, which mm. um, big fan of. Um, there was the character of um, Johnny Taro. Which did this as well, like a, a dude with a just wearing a suit, kind of nineteen thirties New York, with a red handkerchief around his face and a symbol on it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's it. That's that's the look. So here's what distinguishes the clock from Grifter, and why it's fine for the clock, and why for Grifter it's real stupid. Okay, <laughs> if you look at pictures of the clock, his mask only it doesn't go all the way down it basically stops just just below his mouth so you've still got a bit of chin <laughs> jutting out at the bottom so that's quite clever because it's not really long enough for a breeze to catch it and lift it and because he's got the hat on as well to hold it down it's like his is basically uh, a slightly different take on the mask of the like the old west outlaws that we've seen in in fiction you know where they'd have a basic handkerchief around their lower part of their face uh, to keep themselves covered Grifter, he went with a really long piece of cloth that will easily be caught by any breeze and will float up. Essentially, what Grifter has done is looked at the clock and gone, right, first ever crime fighter, I'll do an homage to that. But one, I'll take the worst part of it, and two, I'll do it badly. I, PJ, I have no idea what you're saying anymore. <laughs> the, words, the words have lost all meaning. The, the, the clock's mask... Is is as insubstantial as uh, a, a like a grandma's doily. It is like it is already flapping in the breeze, um, the slightest gust, and you've already got like a bit of mouth on display. Like I don't know how he could possibly hope to keep his identity secret with this. It is, it, it, ugh, yeah. It's it, it's like he made the effort, and it does look good. I'm going to grant you that. Is it an effective way of? Um, Concealing your identity, I would say no. But here's Rifters, the thing as well: Rifters 1936, 1936, mm. different time. Fabric, fabric shortage. You know, not a lot of fabrics to go around back then. The number of heroes from the 1930s who managed to hide their identities with a tiny domino mask. Come on. Also, I would put it to you that Grifter is not trying to uh, hide his identity. Mm, how about that? It's a, it's a statement. It's not a, it's not, a, it's not a secret identity. Is it a statement of I love curtains? Is that the statement? That's the only statement he could possibly Look, be making with that stupid mask. PJ, why don't you take all your hate, pick <laughs> it up, put put it in your pocket, and go read Wildcats version 3.0 by Joe Casey and Dustin uh, Nguyen, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, and, and that is a postmodern superhero tale about superheroes who are no longer really being superheroes, they're being corporate spies and whatnot. And in the middle of it all, Grifter still puts on his mask. He hasn't got his stupid jacket or his stupid boots or his stupid gloves, which I will accept criticism of. He's just a dude who's very good in combat, very good with guns, and has a penchant for for wrapping a handkerchief around his face. And a dude, uh, PJ, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now, a dude takes the piss out of him in a firefight for saying why do you why do you have a rag around your face are you really that ugly and when grifter subsequently kills all the dudes 
Apart from that dude, he goes up to me and says, do you want to make fun of my colours again? And headbutts him. And PJ, I hate violence, but that's you there. That's that's what's happening. That's like, that's the scene. That's Grifter and, and, and your kind of face. <laughs> and uh, him shooting all my friends and headbutting me would not make me wrong. Even Grifter, from the dialogue you've just told me, hasn't said he's wrong. He's just said, don't make fun of me. And PJ, this is why Grifter is like the perfect action figure of a perfect hero, because there's a later scene where, <laughs> hear me outright, hear me outright, there's a later scene where him and a bunch of dudes have to enter into a, a suburban house for a shootout. Believe me, it makes sense in context. And they've, they've, they've fired knockout gas into the house first. They leave it a few minutes, and then they kick the door down, and everyone bursts in, wearing gas masks. And Grifter has a branded Grifter TM red gas mask, which has the same patterns as his as his as his face mask, and it looks incredible. The patterns aren't the issue; it's it's the mask itself, the physical it's shape and. And design it, you know, the the stuff around his eyes, the colours of it, that's fine. That just that looks like a nineties superhero. Fine, no PJ, problem. It's the commitment to the bit. Think about it. It's one thing to have a handkerchief you like and tie around your face. It's another thing entirely to have a custom gas mask made with the same colours. That proves it's more it's more than just the rag, PJ. It's a symbol, it's a statement. It's the bare minimum you need to be a superhero. And it's wonderful. Well, I hope Chris is happy <laughs> that we have had to rehash this debate. Oh, let's not have any if more fan like, mail. <laughs> no, no. If you'd, if you'd like to wade in on how PJ is wrong, uh, you can reach us at uh, contact at bigpunchstudios.com if you want to send us more mail. And, and also, that's an inbox that PJ doesn't have access to. That's so I get true. To vet, I get to vet them before they come, <laughs> before this is, they come in. Uh, this is the hill I'm going to die on, apparently, and and you know I'm happy with that. That's fine. You know, I and and you should be happy because every week I intentionally delete a hundred emails agreeing with you <laughs> because you don't you, you don't need that PJ. You don't need you don't need that weight on your shoulders. And here's the thing: I have absolutely no way of of saying whether that's true or not. Whether John is receiving emails saying no, PJ's right, Grifter's mask is stupid, and just deleting them or not, I'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. Ignorance is bliss. Is it? Is it, though? Look, if people PJ. want to tweet me and tell me that Grifter's Mask is stupid, then I'll form a little club with them and we'll make PJ. pin badges or something. PJ, you need to you need to climb down off from your tower of hate <laughs> and join us in JLA issue 17, Prometheus Unbound, which we're about to talk about. So... Let's should we should we dive into it, John? Should we do that? Maybe maybe we should. We've talked for ooh nearly forty minutes on irrelevant stuff. Maybe we should. <laughs> so I want to start this week by talking about the cover because mm. it's just a lovely Howard Porter drawing of Prometheus standing victorious over the fallen bodies of the Big Seven. Yes, in fact, I I was looking at it just a second ago, and now I've lost it. Yeah, there we go. There we go. It's great. I mean, Prometheus never looked better, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. It's just a, a, a beautiful image. That's all I wanted to say there, really. But there is still a lot of uncertainty at this point, I would say, about Prometheus's costume. Like, there's a lot of variation, sometimes between issues, in how people are drawing him. Yeah. Yeah. On Like, on this cover, Porter's drawing with a 
purple belt and his his shoulder pads are all gold with like gold like screws, nails, whatever those lumps are on it. But lumps. if you go to Porter's drawing of Prometheus inside the previous issue, his belt is sort of grey brown colour with pouches on it, as are the pads. It's just the uh, the lumps on it that are gold. So And and also in the cover shot he doesn't have like um sometimes he has like a like a like a band running down his his trouser leg yep. like a kind of like a gold pipe or something i've got to say like this version on the cover i, I think this is almost like the iconic version of the costume if you ask me like it's yeah, very too. clean this is this is one of the images i think of when i think of prometheus and uh yeah just i mean looking good and you know enjoying his work superman unconscious in the foreground on the cover also looks quite comfy like, he's, he's pulled a rock over himself like a blanket. Yeah, he's just kind of like chilling. And and to Superman, even a even granite would be as soft as a pillow, <laughs> as delicate as a summer breeze. But that's the only Porter image from this issue. The rest of this issue is actually drawn by Arnie Jorgensen, who did the Prometheus one shot. Yes, who um, is going to be a kind of um, infrequent appearance on, but but you know he he comes back a few times uh, on on the series from now on. Yeah, does a couple of fill ins when when Porter's not able to do the art chores. Uh, I should say, PJ, that this uh, original issue came out in April 1998, which makes it um, exactly, hang on. You can do 20, this, John. I believe in you. 20, exactly 23. Let's say to the day. I've got nothing to back that up, but <laughs> it's exactly 23 years to the day that this issue came out. Either the day we're recording or the day you're listening. As long as you're listening in April 2021, it's exactly 23 years to the day. And just think, PJ, a child born on the day this issue came out could now be running a successful tech startup and posting daily on Twitter about how great Grifter's Mask is. Great. Now Isn't I that amazing? vomit on my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but PJ, what, what's, the, what's the recap? What has is, what is, what is recently happened in the pages of JLA? Well, the Justice League have, have uh, reformed and restructured the League, and they've introduced the world's media up to their watchtower to meet the new League, which is basically the Magnificent Seven and some hangers-on. <laughs> <laughs> the Magnificent Seven and an additional kind of all right seven shall we say <laughs> but among the media was the winner of the join the jla for a day contest retro you create your own superhero and you get to join the league but retro wasn't retro retro was prometheus who killed retro and took his costume and now prometheus is systematically taking the league down one at a time so far he has beaten steel jean batman and zauriel, zauriel and huntress Yes, five five down, as and he says. F- five down. He is now confronting Green Lantern and Flash as he throws Batman's body to the floor. Uh, and Prometheus, uh, very much the anti-Batman. Uh, his origin mirrors Bruce Wayne's almost exactly, but on the other side of the law. And uh, yeah, he has he has no powers other than. Um, a, a twisted mind, uh, very resourceful, uh, has trained with martial artists the world over, has incredible technology, and can program the central nervous system with new skills and abilities. So, yeah, he's he's a, he's a resourceful fellow. He, he beat Batman underdog. in a fair fight by downloading the skills of the world's 30 best martial artists, including Batman, into his own head. He beat Batman in a fair fight in an unfair way. Yes, 
which I don't know, maybe some would say is is just resourceful. Pretty much. Good for him, basically. Oh, and also uh, the oxygen supply uh, in the watchtower is on fire. Did you say that, PJ? Or I don't think I? I did. Yeah, they have a little no. forest in the in the watchtower to help with oxygen, and Prometheus has set fire to that. So there's a ticking clock element because the world's media are all going to suffocate unless the JLA do something. And that's where so, yeah. we where we pick up page one of the story. So I guess kind of um, diving in, um, we 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 cut to the moon and. Uh, the watchtower is is quite literally on fire. Like um, flames are shooting out the top of it, and this is not good. And in fact, PJ, in fact, maybe this is an act of greater symbolism because in mythology, what did Prometheus do? He stole fire from the gods, and literally, there is a flaming torch on the moon now. Coincidence? No, no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, that Grant Morrison. They're very clever. A wacky old Morrison. Uh, one of their classic pranks. Um, but yeah, um, Lois Lane is giving us a recap, which, you know, we we, we just gave a recap as well. Um, but uh, despite the bleak situation, uh, she's not too worried because Superman saved her every time she's ever been in trouble. We yeah. live in lucky times. We were born in a world with a Superman. Yeah, Cat Grant's basically saying, I think this is bleak, and Lois is saying, but Superman, we're fine. We're all good. As Superman and Wonder Woman, Hippolyta, not Diana, uh, leads the media through the supervillain gallery that they have in the Watchtower, where we can see some kind of weird Madame Tussauds thing. Of, I don't know who this guy is, the guy with the really long tentacles coming off his head. I... Uh, annoyingly, I don't know his character name, but I know that um, oh god, there's a there's a DC there's a team of villains. Someone is going to someone screaming into the into their uh, high player. <laughs> uh, there's a team of villains in the DC universe who are all based on classic Marvel villains, and they come across from another dimension where they slaughtered all the heroes on their world. And on that team, there's like, oh, what's he called? Like Dream Slayer, uh, Lord Havoc, who's basically Doctor Doom. And then there's this character, whose name I can't remember, who is basically Doctor Octopus. Okay. That's all I can remember. There we go. But there's also a, a dummy of a guy with a starro on its face. So... <laughs> Which is nice. Who makes these? I know. Like, it's, it's insane. Um, and also, quite a nice little statement. They are very lucky to be born in a world with a Superman. I agree completely. I we, wish I had been born yeah, into a world with a we're Superman. We're not lucky, sadly. Um, but yeah, PJ, we turn the page, and what do we see? Question mark. Batman's broken and bleeding body lying on the floor at Prometheus's feet. Well, Prometheus also gives us a recap. So he basically tells us he's taken control of Steel's armour and told Steel to go for a long walk and turn around and throw his hammer. And then, a nice little bit of dialogue, the further the hammer goes, the harder it hits. I bet you didn't even know that. I'm willing to bet a lot of readers did not know that at this point. <laughs> was, that, was that kind of established canon? I can't remember. I genuinely can't remember if that was something that had been established about Steel before... Uh, Morrison brought him into the JLA. Huh. Interesting. Uh, uh, the Martian Manhunter uh, has been reduced to a pile of slime due to a uh, toxin that Prometheus 
uh, shot him with, so he can't uh, he can't form uh, polymer chains in his body. And a nice little touch, he says, I have some more of that for when Plastic Man shows up. And then he says that he's got a dozen ways to defeat every member of the League. He has dossier files for every superhero on the planet. He has been planning this. And, yeah, basically, Kyle and Wally are just, like, kind of stunned. I mean, the sight of Batman covered in blood would kind of freak anybody out, really. And also, um, Wally is in a bit of a bad situation because Prometheus told him that he has put motion-sensitive bombs all over the watchtower and if a flash makes any move at super speed, they will go off, killing everyone. He's also hit Kyle with some neural chaff that means he's unable to concentrate and use his power ring. Yeah, and, you know, uh, with all that, he maybe has reason to be smug, and so we get um, an amazing full-page picture of Prometheus. Um, completely unnecessary, because we already know who Prometheus is. It's just badass. Um, well, Kyle yeah. doesn't, so Kyle asks the question, oh, who are you? That's a good point. They haven't met, have they? But yeah, it's just Prometheus, just with lightning crackling off his helmet and just smiling. He goes, who am I? I'm Prometheus. Just having a great time. And then we get the, the title and the credits. So Prometheus Unbound, writer Grant Morrison, guest penciler Arnie Jorgensen, guest inkers David Mikis and Mark Pennington, letterer Ken Lopez, colorist Pat Garrahy, separator Heroic Age, assistant editor L.A. Williams, and the editor was Dan Raspler. Uh, yeah, and um, again, kind of filling us both in, Prometheus uh, continues on to explain about the neural chaff which uh, has basically given, in his own words, uh, Kyle's brain the flu. So he just can't form coherent thoughts right now, which is nice. Yeah, he actually says, you have all the willpower of an unrepentant heroin addict. I should shoot you right now purely out of mercy. And then he does. He just <laughs> turns around and shoots Kyle in the chest and says, there, I just did. I know, except... It's brutal. It's, it's brutal, and it's a great kind of basing switch, to be honest. It's like... For for all the time in every work of fiction where you've said, why didn't the villain just shoot, you know, James Bond in the head? Why why the elaborate death trap? And Prometheus is like, well, no, screw that. I'm just going to shoot you. And he's got kind of like um, gauntlet-mounted missiles, I guess. Yeah. Or bu bullets. And one of those just flies straight into Kyle's chest. <laughs> and then Kyle is just lying on the floor saying, he shot me. Wally! <laughs> Yeah, like he's 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 like in shock, like he's yeah. he's clutching his his blood on his hands, and um, yeah, Wally doesn't know what to do either because of super speed and um, uh, Prometheus again without even looking over his shoulder just shoots Wally as well. Yeah. So now in one room you have Flash and Green Lantern both been shot lying on the floor next to Batman, who's had the ever living poop kicked out of him. It ain't great, PJ. It ain't great at all. But then we, we cut from there straight back to the villain gallery where a big stone statue of Darkseid, and this is a statement, has been decapitated and then Prometheus leaps on top of it and just stands on top of Darkseid's head. Oh my god. PJ, I swear, in all the years I've had this book, I have never realised that that was a statue of Darkseid. Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is this is an out with the old, in with the new kind of deal. Wow. 
And I guess also proving that uh, Prometheus wasn't lying about his uh, nightstick as well. Yeah. And that it can kind of destabilize matter and hit and hit like a traction engine. Yeah. And then you get the, the re- a really cool moment where Prometheus is basically saying, shuttles have been disabled, there's only one way off the moon and I'm the only one that knows it. And Superman just says, Prometheus. And I love this. Prometheus says, it's weird hearing you say the name. It's like, I've actually made it. Superman said Prometheus and he didn't sound scared. And again, like, yeah, it's just uh, Superman is quick on the uptake as well. I mean, I know, I know, Prometheus left him a, a radio message as well, but there's none of that. Like, who are you? What are you doing here? Like, Superman just gets it. It's a villain, and his name is Prometheus. You know, let's get down to business. But I love that we're so far into the DC universe now. Superman's been around long enough; he's that famous that the first time Prometheus meets him and he genuinely geeks out over Superman saying his name, <laughs> it's, it's a lovely, lovely moment. I absolutely adore it. Um, and yeah, so I guess the fact that Prometheus is is standing off against Superman shows that he's putting his master plan into play. Um, but we cut away to um, Kyle and Wally, and Wally is okay because he's got his speed suit, which has you know absorbed most of the force of the bullet, so he's okay. And he's trying to get Kyle to focus because if he can concentrate, he can heal himself with the ring. Uh, but Kyle is just gonna in a really bad place. Like he can't think properly. Uh, he's in pain. He's been shot. He's in shock. Kind of again, just proves how vulnerable Kyle is without the ring. Like he he's just a very fleshy human, and yeah, can be taken down by just a bullet. And then they hear Batman groaning, and Wally realizes I didn't even think to check that he was still alive. <laughs> as Batman stands up, and I love Batman's line here as well. He just says, "Well, that was a humbling experience." Yeah, still got blood on his jaw, you know, kind of. <laughs> that would, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but it's a learning experience. I like that. Even though Batman's beaten down, he's, um, yeah, he's he's going to take something away from this. He's ready for round two already, essentially. He's probably thinking like, damn it, I knew I should have spent a few extra hours on the Stairmaster today, you know. <laughs> let, letting the training slip. Um, but yeah, like... Um, I think the 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 sense of relief coming off um, Wally and Kyle at this point is palpable because it's like they're good, but also like they know that Batman is probably better. So having him around is like, oh, thank God, you know, we've got someone in our court. They they've come to the realization that to beat Prometheus, they're going to have to outthink him, and they know that no one is better at outthinking on the league than Batman. Yeah, and it's just nice little touches here where. Again, thinking of how powers actually work and using them in kind of like a creative way. Because, you know, Wally points out that like, you know, I don't want to investigate a bullet at normal speed. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's like Wally at super speed would normally be all over this. But yeah, he calls in the guy who is an expert in crime to actually come and have a look at uh, someone who's been shot. Well, a guy who has been shot multiple times, let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah, and and Batman, you know, kind of, I don't know, it's kind of nice actually. He kind of puts a, puts a hand on Kyle's face and just goes like, "Yeah, it's a flesh wound. It will leave a scar, but it won't kill you." This is as comforting as Batman gets, and it actually kind of works. Like, yeah, there's a smile yeah. on Kyle's face, and he just goes, "All right, scarred in action." <laughs> and it is nice, isn't it? Because as much as Batman is like the grumpy old man of the team, and has said himself, like he he can't afford. To put his life in the hands of inexperienced heroes. 
And I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it feels like a weird little moment of like, it's not like Batman would ever go out outright and say, you did good, kid, or you're great, or, you know, you're better than you think, Kyle. He's just like, yeah, look, you know, you've, you're good at what you do. You've been shot in the in the line of duty. Um, you're going to be okay. It's like a kind of oh, thanks, Dad, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then he basically turns to Flash and says, "Look, as soon as we've secured Prometheus, you can give some of your speed to Kyle, and that will accelerate the healing process." And then Wally and Kyle are like, "Hang on, hang on. Prometheus just took us down. Like we're amateurs. How do you think we're going to secure him?" Yeah, and um, this is where. You know, Batman reveals his secret card, which is basically Oracle, who is the JLA's secret member. And you know, with John out of the, with Jean rather out of the picture, they don't have telepathy anymore, but they do have a, a digital whiz kid on their side. Yeah, and you see a, a nice image of or- the Oracle face, not Barbara Gordon, but the actual the symbol that was used for Oracle's face on screens on the JLA computer screen as Batman just talks to her. And then you get a shot of the Earth with some speech bubbles bouncing between satellites to get down there. And, and I love the way Batman describes this too. He says, we're dealing with an intruder who calls himself Prometheus. I think he's new, but run a full cross-reference anyway. If what he's saying is true, he has the skills and ingenuity to defeat the entire JLA. We also have 100 civilians in immediate danger. I'm taking this seriously. Yeah, and again, uh, as as we said in the last issue, like a, a story with a number of quote-unquote twists, I guess, for lack of a better word, like uh, the, ident- the fact that Prometheus is actually retro and the revelation that Oracle is on the team. And, and yet... This is another revelation which, well, spoiled is maybe the wrong word, but we already know because of uh, Secret Files and Origins too. Barbara Gordon is also on the cover of the previous issue. That is true. That is true. To be fair, like it's not. there's no real point in keeping the secret going for this long. It's, yeah, it's just kind of... It's, it's a nice reveal, and I think it would it would have more impact if it hadn't been revealed in advance. But it, it still works, and it is... Uh, a great moment for the team that they have this resource that Prometheus doesn't know about. I guess the big difference is New Year's Evil is so good that I wouldn't get rid of it. And thus, even if that does underpin, uh, sorry, um, undermine the revelation of retro, I don't mind because New Year's Evil is amazing. Hmm. Secret Files and Origins 2 is less than amazing. Yep. So it's like if that hadn't been included for the sake of this revelation being a bit greater, yeah, I'd, I'd probably take it, but it works either way. Yeah, it does. Although Oracle doesn't have good news. She says she has nothing about Prometheus. She'll keep trying. Star Labs are sending a shuttle, but it's going to take time. The JLA need a miracle. Um, do, don't PJ, don't they have any teleporters, like, on speed dial? I mean, like, a metahuman with teleporting abilities. Uh, I'm trying to think of a DC teleporter who could do that sort of range. And I'll be honest, I'm coming up short. I can think of loads of Marvel ones. but uh, Snapper car? What? No, he can't teleport, can he? He can. When did that happen? He, uh, at some point. I don't know, if, that, I don't know if, he, if he even exists at this point in, in continuity. But he, he, he does, he does. He gained the power to snap his fingers and teleport people. Well, I did not remember that. At some point, I don't know. I <laughs> uh, don't know a lot about Snapper Car, to be honest. Um, 
But yeah, um, but we cut away, shall we say, from them needing a miracle to poor Steel, who basically walking like the Tin Man with no control over his armour at all, uh, is just marching further and further into the watchtower, uh, getting ready to swing his his uh, his hammer. But his, his internal thoughts, he's saying, you know, you made a mistake getting me near your computer system because... I've got a way into your system. I just need to purge this virus. I just need 30 seconds. And then as he reaches 20 seconds, he throws his hammer down the hallway. <laughs> it's a wonderful little scene because you, uh, again, it's just played out very well. Like um, Steel and his frustration, just screaming out loud, going like, all I, all I need is 30 seconds. No, don't do this to me. <laughs> no. Uh, as he's getting ready to chuck the hammer. Um, it's wonderfully done. Yeah. And it's a whole page as well of Steel trying to trying to fix his armour and just not quite having enough time. And the final image is he throws the hammer with both hands and it it flies through the air, crackling with energy as Steel screams in frustration. And then on the next page, Plastic Man just leaps out into the hammer's way and catches it in his stomach. <laughs> yeah, and Steel, bless him. Uh, now with uh, complete control of his armor again, uh, just gestures and goes, return, and the hammer goes shooting back towards him. Now, again, two characters who are brand new to the League, uh, and it's kind of nice that Morrison's taking the time to introduce them. Even though it's a small scene, you've got to get the readers on board to uh, to get them to like both these characters. Yeah, and it's like Plastic Man has... has I don't know if we saw a sequence where it happened, but he figured out what was happening with Steel. Maybe he overheard Prometheus tell him about it, or when he was telling Green Lantern and Flash, or what. But Plastic Man just goes there and takes this hammer to the gut. Or maybe he just got really lucky. He could, could have just be. been trying to find the bathroom. <laughs> it could be that, yeah. Although when yeah. he runs through the door, he does shout, Steel, meet Eel. So Very it says to me feet. that this was his intention. Again, only acts like a goofball. Quite a heroic character, Plastic Man, deep yeah, down. definitely. But we get a nice little moment where Steel, uh, again, quite a cool shot, just a close-up of his eyes, is all over the problem. Like, knows exactly what's going on. He says, we're up against an Iceman. He's a technical genius. He's here to hurt people. But if we can get to within a dozen feet of him, I can seize control of his technology. And then Plastic Man, who's who's still got the shape of Steel's hammer uh, coming out of his back, says, sure, and I'll try to seize control of my digestion. Lead the way, I'll slink along behind, coughing up spine fragments. <laughs> now, I remember reading somewhere, or hearing somewhere once, that uh, Morrison was very keen to get Steel on the JLA to essentially fill the Iron Man niche. That the idea that the League didn't have a kind of tech wizard yeah. among their among their ranks. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is pretty much what I read as well where they he wanted someone who had that that science and technology in a different way to Batman. Uh yes. Uh, but but fills that technological that can deal with the technological threats and and use technology to help the league as well and I think Steel is an excellent choice. Because one thing, you know, certainly with the expanding roster, you know, as you get further away from the Magnificent Seven by having more kind of members, you know, you might ask yourself, well, what are, what are each of them bringing to the table? Because Steel can fly, 
he has a suit of armor. He's strong. He's got a big hammer. It's like being strong and being able to fly are not unique qualities on the league. So you might say to yourself, well, why is he there? What, 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 what is he bringing to the table? And of course, what we're getting is that his brain, like his immense kind of like technical knowledge and his way of solving problems. And it's interesting. Yeah, I, I like this scene because it's very short, but it's also very effective at telling you a lot about Steel. Mm. And, I th- and I think Morrison enjoys writing him. I think we'll we'll talk about it in the Wizard special, but I'm sure it's in mm. there where Morrison talks about bringing Steel into the team and how even they were surprised at how much they enjoyed writing Steel and how how much to the front Steel became in the book. Um, mm. I, I don't think even Morrison was expecting it, but it definitely happens. Had there been at this point in history, had Steel had a uh, his own series or a, a mini series or anything? Well. I don't know if there had been a Steel series in between then and now, but certainly during Death of Superman and the reign of the Supermen, Mm. that period, you had four different Superman books and each of the new Supermen was the lead in one of those books leading up to the resurrection of the one true Superman. So Steel did headline Man of Steel for four or five months there. Uh, I wasn't sure, yeah. I wasn't sure if he'd had No, then if there was anything else after that. Interesting, because I, I I certainly came to think of of Steel as a, you know, as a leaguer, mm. like it, it, in the same way that um, you know, Jean hasn't necessarily had kind of like long running series of his own, but shines in the pages of JLA. I kind of yeah, it, for me, Steel became like a quintessential member of the league. But um, I know that's not always the case. Like I know he he hasn't been present in like various iterations over the years. But yeah, it's just just weird i like the character yeah me too i agree um but yeah so we we cut back to uh prometheus uh kind of facing off against superman standing on dark side's head which again i'd never noticed (laughs) um and yeah it's interesting because he's not making a move to attack superman and superman isn't making a move to attack him and again it just makes prometheus interesting to me because he's basically just well posturing and bragging but using his his basically just outlining his plan which is all about his brain more than anything but i also feel like this is where prometheus makes his first mistake because Mm. he is giving superman time to think as well and people underestimate superman's brain all the time that is true yeah if prometheus has a big failing it is his confidence basically his cockiness um because yeah he's basically outlining his master plan which is uh this i knew you'd come this way it's the only route to the shuttle bay uh but if i planned this right and i know i did steel's hammer will shortly crash through one of these walls and the pressure drop will kill everyone except you superman and yeah we get this nice little moment where superman is like He's like, cut to the crap, you know. We didn't say that because he's Superman, but he's like, you know, what do you want? And, Superman, and Prometheus just doesn't immediately tell him, but just kind of shatters Darkseid's head. Yep. With just He's toying with him, really. He thinks he's toying with him, yeah. But obviously Superman will be seeing this differently and, and weighing everything up. But Prometheus just says, nothing you've got. You're hard to kill. So I had to think of something foolproof and demoralizing. I want all the troops to see it before they die. Kill yourself, Superman. 
then I'll allow these people to go home unscathed. My God, when I first read this, I was like, what? Uh, that is a baller move, and I cannot... It just, yeah, it makes total sense. Like These people are in trouble. You don't know how to save them. If you kill yourself, I'll let them go. And that moment where you think Superman would sacrifice himself to save these lives if he didn't have any other option which is what Prometheus thinks he's giving him at the moment. And it, it makes complete and total sense. It's it's kind of brilliant because, again, it shows that Prometheus's most dangerous weapon is the way he thinks about things. And, and yeah, it's completely, it's completely using Superman's strength, his greatest strength against him, his selflessness. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, because, again, you wouldn't win. Prometheus wouldn't stand a chance if he just tried to beat up Superman. So he's scared. Yeah, he's given him a problem he can't solve. Even Superman is taken aback by it. His body language doesn't change. He's still stood in front of Prometheus with his arms folded across his chest, crackling with blue energy. But he just says, what? The best way to take advantage of a a selfless person is to kind of manoeuvre them into a situation where, well, as Prometheus sees it, you know, he thinks they have, they, they think they have no other option. Um... But yeah, like uh, Prometheus just reiterates his point. He goes, look, you're Superman. You're sworn to protect. I mean, isn't that the measure of a big hero? Kill yourself and I'll let them go free to tell the tale. Then we get a brief panel of, of Lois shouting that he can't do that. While Cat Grant thinks he won't have to, maybe it's time old Cat made her move. I, just an interesting point. Uh, this issue, uh, not something which I think pops up in any other issues, but um, we have had a few thought bubbles. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that too. They they were getting rarer at this time in comics, weren't they? And it's nice to see they're them. Def- they're definitely falling out of favour. Yeah, but yeah, they narratively they work fine in this instance. Um, and then we get uh, Superman again, not saying no. I mean, not saying no because he's Superman. Uh, he is a selfless person, but he's also, as you rightly said, PJ, not just a big strong guy. He's very smart, and he also knows he has absolutely no reason to believe that Prometheus is telling the truth. Yeah, He says as much. He goes, I'll do whatever it takes to get these people to safety, but I've also just scanned your armor and I could basically wipe your entire computer system in an instant. Yeah, and Prometheus admits, well, that's true, but that won't make me tell you how to transport these people back to Earth, and I'm only going to do that when you're dead, so get on with it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And here's here's a moment I love where Hippolyta's like, Look, I've got the lasso of truth here. You know, I could compel you to tell us anything we want to know. No man born on Earth can resist its power. And I love this moment from Prometheus. He goes, I was born on Earth and I can. I promise you, I'll resist until my mind is in ruins. I can do it, Wonder Woman, and you still won't get what you need. So Prometheus is willing to lose to win as well. That's one of the dangerous things about him. He doesn't care if he doesn't come out of this intact as long as he has destroyed the Justice League. Yeah, and and it's interesting that um, again, I think as as Hippolyta says, you know, she's not as used to this kind of situation as Diana would have been. Um, Because it's interesting because she's also kind of taking Prometheus at his word that he does have a solution that he does know the way out. When, again, it could all just be lies. Like, he's a manipulator and very good at it. 
Yeah, oh, but also it starts raining inside at this point. Which is fun. <laughs> um, and we see we see Aquaman down in his in his special pond. In his deep water tank by the sluice gates and putting in a huge amount of effort to basically release this seal and divert the water from his tanks to the sprinkler system to put out the fire. As Superman says, he's done this manually, my God. And you can see the effort it's taking Aquaman to do this. It's, it's a really good panel, actually. It is a great panel, actually. I, I like Arnie Jorgensen's artwork. I, I, think mm. it's, I think it's really good. It's got a lot of energy. Yeah, and again, packs a lot. Uh, some of these panels are quite complex, and he, he does pack a lot in as well. Some nice camera angles, good composition. It's it's really very nice, actually. I'm I'm not massively familiar with his work. I might have to be um might have to kind of track mm. it down and see see where else we can find him. Yeah, I think that yeah, definitely, because I, I do really like his work in this book. Um, but uh, Prometheus is nonplussed by the sprinklers. Uh, we see that the tower is still on fire. And he says, you know, look, you know, okay, sprinklers, bravo, but that's not going to mend the damage I've already done. Everyone's going to die soon. So, um, you know, chop, chop, big guy. And uh, I can suggest maybe half a dozen ways of killing yourself if you need if you need some ideas. But then he says, but I can't be bothered. So think oh, of something point. and do it. So I don't <laughs> think he does have any ideas. I think he's just banking on Superman knowing how to do it. I think that's just Prometheus... Slightly overhyping. I feel like Prometheus is starting to lose his control a little bit at this point. Is he reaching a bit? Yeah, just a bit. Because Superman quite rightly says, well, how can I trust you? Save these people first and then I'll do what you want. You owe me that much. And Prometheus angrily just says, I don't owe you anything, you pompous monstrosity. And I do love this line, though. He says, you know what I am? I'm the ghost haunting your dream house. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. He's just, yeah. Again, I, 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 I love Prometheus. I love the idea that he's just like, yeah. I'm just here to. I'm just here to ruin things. I'm just, yeah. You exist. I'm the. I'm the. I'm the opposite of that. I'm your shadow, and I'm just here to mess with you, basically. Yeah, he's, and then he starts explaining his origin. Justice killed my parents. I was traumatized, and Superman says, "Look, I'm sorry. I wish I could have been there to help." As Lois finds Cat Grant's face on the floor. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, a voice uh, kind of um, calls out from um, off-panel and says, so you're just another poor little mummy's boy. Is that it, Prometheus? And I, <laughs> I love that even before he knows who's speaking, Prometheus is like, no, I had that dealt with by a Reikian therapist in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he turns around and Catwoman is behind him. And she starts explaining the bullwhip. PJ, quick question. Yeah. Do Now, we know that Cat, fellow reporter to Lois, was wearing a mask of Cat's face. Yeah. Do you believe, as I have always chosen to believe, that under the costume, she had the full mask on, the full Catwoman mask? So I, I imagine under... the mask was was pulled down, so it would have just been sort of back on her shoulders, and all she did was take off the Cat Grant mask and pull up the Catwoman mask. I'd always, I, I still choose to, I prefer to believe PJ that um, her purple mask was under Cat's face the whole time. I mean, your theory is more fun, definitely. 
Um, maybe like the cat. I like that when she when she ripped Cat's face off, like her her little cat ears, she was just like boing, just kind of like <laughs> they've been they've been under pressure the whole time. But Catwoman starts explaining to Prometheus that the tip of a cracked bullwhip accelerates at one thousand one hundred feet per second. That's the speed of sound, and then she hits him with the bullwhip, and Prometheus just it. It catches him completely off guard. He staggers, he drops his nightstick and falls to his knees. As Catwoman says, did that feel like the speed of sound, mummy's boy? Uh, yeah, and we should we should say, um, she hits him right in the groin. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the sound effect, the sound effect uh, is his crack is right over Prometheus's crotch. Bless him. As, um, <laughs> he takes a bullwhip at the speed of sound to the groin. Uh, and again... It kind of takes the wind out of his sails. Like, as big and, and as imposing as he has been, uh, it's hard to look dignified once you've been kicked really, really hard in the balls. Yes. As Superman and Wonder Woman just stand there watching, as then Prometheus shouts traitor and shoots at Catwoman with his wrist blaster thing. Yeah, which is interesting, because Prometheus has some pretty kind of, like, um, black-and-white views of villainy. Yeah, and in a weird way, he's kind of like committed himself to the ideal of evil. Like less, he's not, he doesn't want money. He's not robbing banks, he, and so he sees Catwoman as a traitor because she's a villain helping heroes. Like that's literally how black and white he sees things. I mean, did he not know Catwoman had her own solo title at this point, so she's definitely an anti-hero now rather than a villain? Come on, Prometheus, keep up with continuity. Maybe his, he's only been keeping dossiers on classical heroes. You know, he didn't really think about the anti-heroes. Uh, but we do get, then, a close-up of the little missile dart heading towards Catwoman's head, and then just before it hits her in the eye, a crossbow bolt smashes it out of the air. Which is insane. It's, like if we're it's gonna, beautiful. <laughs> if we're going to talk about super superhuman feats, um, shooting a bullet out of the air <laughs> with a crossbow bolt is perhaps the most incredible thing we've seen all all issue. It's yeah, it's glorious, and it's Huntress. Huntress is back. Just she says, "Just saved your life, cats." Next one's for you, Prometheus. And then Prometheus just says, "Ah, oh, Huntress, I forgot about you after I fought Batman." And then his helmet explodes. Yeah, he says like too much data flooding my. And then he he kind of screams, and has to literally rip the helmet off his head in agony, uh, as Steel's hammer pops into shot, and a voice goes, "Your armor is under my control." You're in deep trouble. And Prometheus finds himself surrounded by Steel, Plastic Man, The Flash, Huntress, Catwoman, and Batman. Yeah, and just this lovely moment where he doesn't even try to go out fighting. He just goes, well, guess I'll put this one down to experience. And next time, you won't even hear me coming. And again, just how much I love Prometheus. He grabs a cosmic key and he goes, you can look and you can look but you'll never find me. I'll erase you from the pages of history. By the way, Flash, I was lying about the motion detectors and the bombs. Boom. And he disappears. You just get the, a pure white panel with the cosmic key click sound effect in it and a couple of Kirby dots on the edge. And then he's gone. And Flash just stands there forlornly with a tiny speech bubble that just says, what? 
again, he lied about the bombs. He lied about the bombs, PJ. It's again, he gets inside people's heads. He's a smart guy. But I, you know, I get it because he says that to Flash, and then Flash, what he can't take that risk. Part of Wally's brain probably was going, is he telling the truth? But what if he was telling the truth? Flash would kill everyone just by moving at super speed. The same way that he sought to exploit Superman. Like, inherently selfless and caring people could never endanger innocence. So that's how Prometheus wins. He kind of turns your... Well, he doesn't win in this instance, but that's how he thinks he's going to win, is turning your strength into a weakness. Mm. And Batman sums it up with one word. Incredible. And for that to become it, that's an admission from Batman that Prometheus is a formidable villain that if they have to deal with him again is going to be a challenge. Uh, and we should say that Batman has picked up Prometheus's helmet, which uh, was discarded. Yeah. So remember that. Remember that. Um, but we cut to the ghost zone and uh, Prometheus's crooked house in the foundations of reality. You're right. Sorry, there, PJ. I, I, yeah, no, I, just, I just had to. <laughs> I just kind of turned off camera to kind of like cough delicately. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, PJ, Prometheus is not alone. No, he says, the angel, damn, forgot about you too. Both at the same time. And Zauriel is still in the house, leaps at Prometheus, shouting, what have you done to? And Prometheus just says, must have been a bug in the short term memory. Out. And returns Zauriel to the watchtower. And yeah, and suddenly. You know, Zariel is standing where Prometheus was, and he's kind of in shock. He's like, uh, like limbo. Great God, his house is in limbo. Only the dead go there. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite a revelation. <laughs> Fun times. Um, but yeah, so all's well that ends well, shall we say? This is, you know, or is it? Maybe there's more to come. Well, we cut to a short time later now because uh, Jean is back. He's recovered his form. Plastic Man is handing him a drink. And Catwoman is sat in one of the Justice League's chairs. And she says, lucky for you, he didn't have a criminal database. Also, lucky for you, I decided to creep on board disguised as an idiot scandal columnist. And, uh, yeah, everyone's kind of like wrapping up. Uh, and Batman, still holding Prometheus's helmet, says, you know, under the circumstances, I'm glad you made it but you can put the Storm Opals from Ran back on your way out because, um, well, she's a, she's a thief, isn't she? You know, she uh, can't can't change your nature. Yeah, I assume that's why she came aboard the Watchtower. She thought, hey, this is a chance to steal something shiny from the Justice League. That'll be cool. Uh, and she also says, you know, Oracle's got my number if you ever need me, you know, so uh, this has been fun. Um, and <laughs> Superman... <laughs> Sorry, PJ, please take it. Yeah, Superman just... Well, in light of Catwoman's role defeating Prometheus, I think we should overlook her. And presumably he's about to say stealing things and impersonating a reporter. But before he can, uh, there's a boom. And Aquaman just... Oh, no. Boom tube. And there it is. It's those bloody new gods, PJ. They're back. Again. We've only just done a new gods adventure. And... uh... I love a boom tube. I think a boom tube is a wonderful concept. And Arnie Jorgensen draws it very well because three figures who are just like white light uh, engulfed in Kirby crackle emerge from the, from the tube. And, and Superman places himself in front of everyone and goes, OK, everybody stand back. All right. You know, whatever you do, stay away from the tube. He's instantly ready for action again after everything that's just happened. 
and Superman is already straight away, I'm going to deal with whatever comes through here. And it is Tachyon, who is the new High Father of New Genesis. And he's got Orion and Big Barda with him, and just very matter-of-factly says, the warriors Orion and Barda have, until further notice, been assigned as protectors of Earth. Uh, yeah, I, while while they're having like this com- this relatively mundane conversation, um, the air is just full of Kirby crackle and like lightning. Um, it's wild, and yeah, Takyung goes, "Hey, yeah, so you know, we we chose these two because uh, you know they look maybe the most human, um, and uh, yeah, as Metron as Metron predicted, now it comes to pass." And Superman is just like, again, as close to annoyed as he ever yeah. gets. Because he's just like, okay, okay, okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow the hell down. Metron told us to prepare for the fortification of Earth against what? Tachyon, for God's sake. What does assigned as protectors mean? He doesn't say for God's sake. He's Superman, but, yeah. you know. For new God's sake. For new God's sake, yeah, for Tachyon's sake. But Tachyon just says, you will know. The new gods move in mysterious ways, Superman. I could tell you, but I'd prefer to be obnoxious. And he just leaves. And yeah, all the Kirby crackle kind of fades. And Superman just goes like, Orion, like, what is this? An invasion? You know, we, for God's sake, we have rules here. And Orion, um, who is always a bundle of laughs, and we're going to be seeing some more of him, just goes... I am a god of war, Superman. I will fight and die in your planet's defense if that is what High Father if that is High Father's decree, but I will not recognize your rules. I will judge as I choose when to strike and with what severity. Which leads to Batman. Batman. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, and hey, guess what guys? The league has now just gained two new members. And Barda says, I'll I'll Try and keep Orion in check. Look, we'd, we'd like to join you, Superman, and help you, and we have a lot to offer. We could bring some machines to make the place a little more advanced. Look at it as a cultural exchange, and Superman's like, we're going to have a conversation. I also like that, in a way, they can't really say no. No. Either. It's like, your big cosmic space dad has turned up, dropped your two weird alien space god cousins with you, and just said that they're staying with you for the summer, basically. And then we cut to a little bit later with Zariel putting Prometheus's helmet in a cabinet in the trophy room. He says, uh, I'm going to be in charge of the trophy room because I love collecting things. <laughs> and yeah, uh, Zariel and Steel are just chatting and uh, Zariel does an impression of Plastic Man. Uh, to which Steel says, after today, I'm officially Plastic Man's best friend in the whole world. And he says, we've joined a very interesting group, Zariel. I'm looking forward to saving the Earth on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, and we have the uh, the meeting room uh, where Superman is having an impromptu meeting with, I guess, everybody who's now in the League, uh, which is a lot of people. As Aquaman says, is there anyone left who isn't a member of the JLA? Ah, forget it. <laughs> he's, he's grumbling. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and Superman, ever the inspiring speech giver, says, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, the JLA has grown in strength. We're, we're finally a force for good. You know, everything we dreamed of becoming. 
I look around and I see some of the greatest heroes in history, men and women I'm proud to stand alongside. And then he says, uh, you know, if Prometheus is any indication of the kind of threat we that might be coming our way, we'll need all the strength we can get. We We could have died, but all our new members came through and we do still have one more thing to do because there's all those reporters out there and we still need to fix things to get them back to Earth. So then he says, so those of you who wish can follow me to the reception area. Big smiles, please. And then a big <laughs> splash page as he says, this looks like a job for the JLA. And it looks like the ones who don't want to go are Orion and Barda, Steel, Huntress, Zariel, and of course, Batman, because Batman can't reveal that he's real. And I guess that means counting everybody on the page. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, excluding Catwoman, yep. who is just here for the team shot. Yeah, PJ, that's it. We're here. 14 members is our new regular roster going yes. forward. Oracle's uh, Oracle head is floating above the JLA's ta- meeting table as well, so she is also present. But yeah, this is our league for a while. And... I, I, like fourteen is a is a big team. I think by most standards, yes. Uh, I think the Avengers very rarely had a roster that big. Like, it's a lot. Well, I think you'll see from the very next story that it's rare you get all fourteen members appearing in once in one adventure together. Uh, the very next story, I think, does pair it down to seven. I do love the opportunities it gives you to chop and change who you get on an, an adventure. The interesting combinations that come up are really cool. There are some very good th- like characters you wouldn't necessarily think of putting together who just by the nature of being in this book together will soon be, be appearing in an adventure as a smaller team. And yeah, it, it does do some very interesting stuff. And it's so weird, isn't it? Because, again, it's a weird assemblage of of characters and yet i look at them now like in this kind of picture as a team and i'm like oh yeah like we're we're moving into a new era of jla but like i have read and enjoyed so many stories featuring this team like this cast of characters and you know it's like um you know uh zoriel steel you know huntress like characters who I've not read their solo work or, you know, or characters who haven't really had a big history as solo characters. And yet I look at them here and I think, oh, yeah, you know, I love them in the pages of JLA. Like it's that they are leaguers to me. This is this is my Justice League fully formed now. Yeah, this this is this is my favorite iteration and my favorite era and therefore my favorite team in the history of the JLA. I like that. We've already, because again, Morrison has had plenty of time for us to get to know the Magnificent Seven, you know, and I like that even in a story where we don't spend a lot of time with all of the new members, we're already starting to get little hints of some of the character dynamics and and relationships which which are going to be played out later, like the burgeoning kind of bromance between Plastic Man and Steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, or, or indeed, the fact that Ste- uh, Zoriel and Plastic Man kind of end up spending a lot of time together. Or that Zoriel is just kind of like the admin guy for the team. <laughs> like, for whatever reason, he's the one who's always, like, organising the trophy room or tidying up and stuff. It's just, 
weird little details like that. Yeah, I would say if if, if anyone is slightly underused and underserved, it's Hippolyta. Yes. I, I almost feel like Morrison didn't particularly want to use Hippolyta, but she was Wonder Woman at the time. So that was it. He was he was sort of stuck with her. But I feel like Hippolyta won't get a lot to do in in the book going forward. And when she does, she's almost just treated like she is Diana, other than the odd odd line here and there in her name. Yeah. And to be honest, maybe it's a different matter if you read the Wonder Woman series. Like mm. maybe, you know, if you spend a bit more time with Hippolyta, you know, it's completely different characters. But yeah, essentially she's just she's basically Diana, but in a skirt. Yeah. You know, for for the purpose she serves in the story, at least. Yeah, exactly. That that's just how it feels to me. And uh it's not a spoiler to say that there will come a point where Diana returns to the JLA she, and Hippolyta leaves. That's not a spoiler. But it's weirdly after that, when Hippolyta reappears, that she gets the most to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's weird because it's still a very kind of like male-heavy team. There's a lot of guys. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, you pointed out that like um, there's not a lot going on for Hippolyta. You know, maybe Morrison felt kind of less engaged with her as a character. But like Huntress is already starting to shine for yeah. me. Yeah. You know, and Huntress goes on to be one of my like favorite members of the league, which is so weird because to be cruel, you'd go like, well, she's just a low rent Batman clone. But I really like her. I really, really like her in the pages of JLA. I think that's the problem. Uh, some writers have just written her as a low rent Batman clone when you can do much more interesting things than that with her. And the best Huntress stories, and I include her appearances here in JLA, do just that. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, just because we've been saying for issues that Kyle is kind of like the emotional heart of the team, you know, his journey to becoming accepted by the League, we kind of we kind of have Huntress kind of stepping into those shoes now. You know, we have a character who has always struggled with her relationship with Batman, you know, and, and his kind of disdain for her, um, a very difficult kind of father figure. And then she's she's so normal. You know, I like how when the League are dealing with weird nonsense, she's the one going, this is insane, right? Yeah. Like, this is wild. I'm here with a crossbow. <laughs> what, what on earth are we doing? Yeah, exactly. But in this very issue, she and her crossbow make the difference between Catwoman ending the issue dead and alive. And again, like... Just because everything we were saying about Prometheus could be applied to... Well, it's interesting because we were saying, like, you know, to steal, to Huntress. I mean, I think one of the qualities I never really appreciated, but I realise now is is great about this series, is the way people think, the way these characters think. You know, I like Huntress not because she's the strongest, the fastest, the best fighter. You know, in many situations... She's kind of useless. I don't. I don't mean that as a as a criticism. I mean like she's completely out of her depth against hmm. some of this stuff, and yet she finds a way through it by being smart and clever. And you kind of see what Batman saw in her, and you realise why she's a valued member of the league. Yeah, completely, definitely, and 
Huntress is going to get some very interesting things to do as we go along. She's got a couple of my favourite moments, I think, in the series as a whole. And, yeah, I'm excited to revisit them. Question for you, John. Mm. Catwoman. Yes. Does she feel in this issue like a bit of a deus ex machina to you? Massively so. Yeah. Uh, Which kind of makes me wonder why. (laughs) It does kind of make me wonder, like... Did Morrison just really want to have Catwoman feature? Yeah. Did, did Morrison want just want to use Catwoman in an issue and this felt like the right point to them? Or had they almost written themselves into a hole with Prometheus that they needed this Deus Ex Machina to get out of? Or like they do slightly seed it a little bit just by having Cat Grant be one of the reporters, but I I don't know if I buy that Catwoman would be able to impersonate Cat Grant enough to fool Lois. Yeah, it it is odd, isn't it? Because like, certainly based on the last page, you'd be you'd be forgiven for thinking that oh, Catwoman's on the league now. You know that that's an interesting but fun choice. Like if Huntress can be on the league, why not Catwoman? Um, but that's not the case at all. So you're kind of like, um. I, I, I don't know, like, was Morrison kind of making the case that Catwoman could be on the league and then the editors were like, no, no, lock it down? Or, yeah, was it deus ex machina? Was it like, I just like Catwoman. I just want to yeah. just want to have a cameo. I do I do not know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of fine with it because Catwoman is fun when she reveals herself. Her little speech to Prometheus and is, is great and... Yeah, this is the only time she'll appear in in the run in mm. in Morrison's Justice League, and I don't think she has ever joined it, uh, any iteration of the JLA, to my knowledge. It's I I guess I guess it could be the whole pot the whole point being that Prometheus has a has a file for every hero, so Prometheus has like a way of defeating every hero, ergo the smart way is to have a villain defeat him. So I guess that could be like the kind of meta point of the narrative. But as you, as you rightly pointed out, like Prometheus, Prometheus's plan was already unraveling. You know, like um, Steel didn't break the hull. Um, the, you know, Batman was alive. Like they were about to take him down anyway. Yeah. So quite what Catwoman brought to the table, I don't know. It was a fun moment. But it certainly wasn't critical to the to the mission, I suppose. I almost feel like if there could have been a small moment in there that implied, you know, Batman had planted her in with the reporters because he suspected something might happen and she was available. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, it does... There's no real hints up to that that Cat Grant is anything other than Cat Grant. No, although it's, I guess it... I guess it could be said, like, why did we spend so much time with Cat Grant? It's like there was always a point made that Cat Grant was present. Hmm. So, I mean, she serves a role just for being someone for Lois to talk to. But, like, again, kind of why, in a way? Like, I wasn't even massively familiar with the character of Cat Grant at that time. Um, But, yeah, just, I don't know, interesting. To be a fly on the wall would be would be interesting yeah i agree i agree as we say it's a fun moment but it does feel a little sudden 
Yeah. No, no, it's, it's an absolutely fair point. Um, and again, you take it at face value because we're all having a great time. But yeah, it's, you know, for that big reveal of Catwoman taking off the mask, whipping Prometheus, it's like he then shoots her. Like, if Huntress hadn't been there, she probably would have died. Yeah. Uh, and then Prometheus is on hand, having Steel instantly disables his armour. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Morrison just really like Catwoman. I don't know. Maybe. It, and it does buy Superman a little bit of extra time, so he doesn't have to just kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's so weird, isn't it? Because, again, at the end of the day, the heroes have to win. Um but it's interesting that for for how incredibly well planned Prometheus has everything, you know, like as has he's so in control, and then it so quickly falls apart. Yeah. Um. At the same time, I guess I guess the league kind of got quite lucky. You get you get the sense that you know Batman does have a sense of how close it could have been. Like he he took this seriously at least. Yeah. Yeah, learn some learn something from it. Well, Batman now has a new enemy to be prepared to fight, doesn't he? I, I mean, we've we've spoken a lot over the last few episodes about how much we love Prometheus. Um, we're not going to see him for a little while now, mm-hmm. but I have to say, when he turns up again, I absolutely love it. Me too. Like as much as I love this first appearance, like his second appearance, which interestingly was my first encounter with him will forever hold a kind of special place in my heart like when he turns up again i genuinely get kind of shivers like it's it's really cool well see i was one of those people who uh, this was the jla book that was the most recent one out when i started reading the series so i read this version this this prometheus story before the next one and i was one of those people who was then waiting for a couple of years for the with bated breath for the Batman versus Prometheus rematch. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And yeah. when it comes, it is not what you expect, and it's brilliant. It is, and just even some of the... You know, it, again, it's, it's, it's a sign of how good a villain is, where even though he's completely undone and completely defeated, when he turns up again, and again... Try not to spoil stuff that's coming later, but the way Morrison kind of like hints at him coming, you do get a genuine sense of kind of fear for the league because you're kind of like, oh wow, like this is something to be scared of. I don't think I'll ever forget like his his first appearance in 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 the next book he appears in. Like, yeah, it's it's wonderful, so good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And again, it's I mean. It's sad in a way because it's like it's the beginning of the end for Prometheus, like as a character, as a concept. Like it never really gets better no. than these pa- these pages of JLA. Not at all. Not at all. No one else got Prometheus quite like Morrison did. And it's so weird. It's I, I, again, I will never, never understand why DC didn't milk this more. You know why we why Prometheus didn't become a staple because he was such a good villain. Well, I think they tried, but the problem was no one could could write Prometheus the way Morrison could. It was one of those characters who just doesn't work unless they're with their original creator. There aren't many of those, but Prometheus is one of them. Yeah. His uh, JLA Avengers cameo aside. Uh yes, that's true. Very, uh, which again is is fleeting and short, but um, 
you know, brought a bit of joy to you and I when we saw it. <laughs> Yay, Prometheus. Um, but PJ, I mean, okay, we, we have completed this, this three-part introduction to um, Prometheus. I mean, is there anything more to say? Like, are there any kind of like final, final thoughts or, you know, thoughts about what's ahead of us? Uh, I think a brief thought about what's ahead of us is our next uh, next episode and next issue is our first guest writer story. So it's our first story from the main JLA book, not written by Morrison, as we welcome Mark Wade into his first JLA story. Yeah, which again is is weird, you know, because it's like we've had um, we've had guest artists come in. If only I can imagine, because it would be absolutely exhausting to be Howard yeah. Porter. Uh, like, the man needs a break every now and then. Um, but yeah, you suggested that maybe one reason for having a guest writer was that Morrison was guesting on other titles at the time? Uh, I know. I don't know if it's now or a different point, because Wade does a few. He does these two and then the following two issues. The next four issues of JLA are all written by Mark Wade, but then Morrison comes back. But there are more Mark Wade written stories elsewhere throughout the run of JLA. And I know mm. there was a point where they swapped books. So Morrison went and did a guest stint on The Flash while Wade was writing JLA. So it might be these four issues here. Maybe so. Maybe so. Or, you know, or again, maybe maybe Morrison needed a break yeah. for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know. It's um... Well, they have done a lot in the last few months. Don't forget, they've just finished Rock of Ages, <laughs> which had the extra length issue. They've done the Prometheus one shot as well as their normal issues of of JLA. Uh, I'm sure there was something else around this time as well that um, they were doing. Well, Wildcat JLA Wildcats came out at like the same time as uh, Rock of Ages was starting. There you go. Um, yeah, we were like, yeah, this was the crazy busy period, and chronologically, I, I don't think I, whew, I don't think I could tell you what else Morrison was working on at the time. May have had a few kind of one one shots or creator owned kind of things. Um, did you really try and put together the perfect Morrison kind of chronology? Yeah, because <laughs> I I feel there was a time when I I had it kind of locked down in my head, and then it, it's definitely unravelled. Yeah, no, we need to get them on the show, really, don't we? That's oh, the it's dream. Only a, matter, only a matter of time, PJ. <laughs> only you know you know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah our, our people are talking to their people it's uh it's all gonna be great oh god don't call our bluff um but yeah um yeah so yeah it's gonna it's gonna be fun kind of diving into this next uh weird little chapter really do you know what else the next issue is my first issue of jla really your f- well your first kind of single issue that you yeah before i even read any of the trades it was after buying this issue and then a couple of months later, managing to track down the second part of the story, that I then went back and started getting the trades. Oh, wild. So this next issue is my first encounter with this iteration of the JLA. And with oh, Howard God, Porter what, drawing them. God, what a weird place to start as well, because, because of course, um, yeah, you, you joined at a point where it was not the the iconic writer that made that series kind of famous as well. It was uh, for my birthday that year, a friend just gave me a stack of random comics and this issue was in there. It was one of those comics. It's the only one that really still sticks in my mind that I actually remember being one of the comics I was given for my birthday that year. Uh, But it really did stick with me and is what led me to JLA and therefore to Morrison and the JLA. 
and led me to love this book as much as I did. So I have a real soft spot for the next issue, even though it's not a Morrison one. And which ultimately, PJ, led you led you here to the JLA cast. Oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe I don't like it so much. In those so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was about to say something heartwarming about like, you know, PJ, it's been a year and what a year, you know, for the world and everything. But, you know, I look forward to the next year and the year after that. But maybe I won't say that. <laughs> maybe I'll keep that to myself. No, I kid. But actually, genuinely, no, that's that's right. If I hadn't read this issue of JLA, I may not have loved the series as much and we may not have ended up doing this podcast. So, I mean, P- PJ, maybe you wouldn't have ended up liking comics as much maybe yeah so you know, you uh, let's thank have... let's all thank george my friend who at the age of 16 gave me a small stack of comics including that issue of jla who at the age of 16 lent you some comics which he definitely wanted back which no no no, he bought them specifically for me oh wow well what a hero george we uh, we salute you from from the gulf of time <laughs> Um, well, I guess I really don't think there's much more to say on on Prometheus. Um, uh, I, I, I very much enjoyed it, PJ. It's, it's yeah. been a gem of a little story. Um, yeah, really has. And I guess I should do that thing I always do, which is to thank uh, Gav Mitchell for our incredible cover art. And Elliot Red for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. Which you and can also get on his SoundCloud now, by the way. He's made that available for anyone who wants to just go listen to it whenever they like. Yeah, if you're looking for um, maybe a new ringtone or, uh, you know, just kind of background music for your life, it is very good. Um, uh, yeah, and if you, if, you enjoy, uh, if you enjoy listening to, you know, PJ and I uh, kind of waffle on about this sort of thing, you can, you can find us on the social medias. Our details are in the description. Um, thank you for joining us on this, on this year. It's been, it's been great having, you know, you around, people listening and everything. It's it's, it's it's wonderful. It really, it really has been. And I have enjoyed interacting with a, a couple of people on Twitter talking JLA after our episodes drop. They'll uh, so Occasionally someone will shoot me a message and we'll have a little chat about the league. Oh, it's great. It's heartwarming. It's, yeah. it, it, it does two increasingly old men good. To, uh, it keeps me vital. <laughs> it keeps me young. Um, but PJ, on that note, uh, would you like to uh, you know see us off in the manner which you've completely locked down and committed to memory in the, you know, 100 plus hours we've been doing this show. Somehow, I always forget that you make me do this, so I never plan anything in advance. I don't know if people have noticed that yet or not, but um, I'm going to go have my lunch. Yeah, I'm starving, actually. Let's get some food. (laughs) 